All right, all right. Hey, get your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah 58. And uh, while you're turning there, today is a really important uh, day in the life of our church. This is what we call Big Give Sunday. And it's a day, one time a year, when we give a special gift above and beyond our regular giving to really move the kingdom of God forward in a specific way. This year, uh, 100% of your gifts to the Big Give go to uh, uh, help support and sponsor grants to uh, community partners in our immediate area who are caring for the poor, caring for the needy, caring, uh, defending the, the unborn, uh, helping release people from sexual pornography and, uh, and sex trafficking. I mean, just those that are the neediest of needy uh, in our community, we are just releasing and helping and caring and loving on, on folks like that. And so we, are, we couldn't be more excited about this year's Big Give. And so if you think, man, I'm coming to church, they're talking about money. Yeah, that's right. We're talking about giving to the needy folks in our area. I think every church should be doing that. Every church should be doing that. That's on God's heart. So that's what we're going to talk about today out of Isaiah 58. But let me first off start with a story. Richard Stern really had it all together. This guy's what lived the perfect life. He was a, uh, he was a CEO of a major company, international company. He was making a lot of money. He lived in a 200-year-old stone farmhouse with 10 bedrooms on five acres of land in Pennsylvania. He had five children, wonderful children, had a beautiful, wonderful, loyal wife to him. Everything that he probably aspired to, he was living out. He had it all together until he got a phone call that changed everything for him. Let me, but before I tell you about that phone call, let me rewind a little bit back and give you some backstory. Rich and Renee... Uh, they got saved just shortly after they were married. And when they got saved, they fell in love with Jesus. And they determined they really didn't want to be like those church-going folks that you know, go to church, but they don't really, uh, don't really seem to live a different life. They wanted to be focused on the kingdom of God. They wanted to give their life to the gospel. And so what they did was they, they were part of the Park Street Church in Boston where they uh, were saved. They were a part of that church. They volunteered in the youth group. They went to missions conferences. They gave generously out of the money that they had. Uh, they served the poor in rural Massachusetts. They did everything that they thought they should do. And it seemed like everything was aligned with the gospel. And then life happened. You know, you fast forward uh, uh, 20 years or so and, and more kids came along and the, things got busy and the work became more demanding. And every job that he would take and move up the ladder just required more time and more energy and more effort for him to lead at the highest level. While he was being successful on the outside, though, he knew that something was missing on the inside. That, that young energy, that enthusiasm, that idealism that they used to have had kind of settled into just going to church and going through the motions. That's when the phone call came. The phone call was from a headhunter uh, looking to fill a CEO position for an international relief organization called World Vision, a Christian relief organization. And they were looking for him to leave his high paying posh job and to, to move into this Christian organization and to lead its work. Right off the bat, Rich was not really interested in the job. I mean, he actually laughed when they asked him to do that. And he said, look, look, he goes, I, 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 I'm, I'm not qualified. I don't know the countries that you work in. I don't know the work. I've never been in any kind of ministry role before. I'm just a business guy. And he said, by the way, I'm just the wrong guy for it. I'm not your guy. And then that recruiter asked him a question 
that rocked him back on his heels. He said, Rich, would you be willing to consider God's will for your life? Would you be willing to consider God's will for your life? Man, those words just shot like an arrow into his heart. Even long after the phone call was over, those words kept ringing in his ear. Would I be willing to consider? He knew what that meant. I mean, to, to give up the Jaguar and to give up the, the big farmhouse and to, and to actually move away from all these things that he felt like he deserved and he earned for 20 plus years of working in the business world. Would he be willing to channel that toward the poor and the needy and the hurting around the world? You know, as I was listening to that story, that question kept ringing in my head. Craig, would you be willing to consider God's will for your life, even if it meant change? So I ask you that question. Would you be willing? Would you be willing to consider God's will for your life, even if it meant to downsize or to take somebody into your home? Would you be willing if, to move your kids to a different school or to take a cut in pay? Would you be willing to to pursue God's best for your life no matter what. You see, I believe that within all of us, there is bound up this great potential to serve God and to change the world. But very few people actually tap into it. Most of the time, somewhere along the line, we say, well, you know, I'll give this much, but not more. I'll, I'll go here, but not that. I'll serve in this way, but not that way. And we, we kind of arrange our lives to what's comfortable and known to us. And we pretty much rule out anything that God would ask us to do outside of that. But are you willing to serve God, even if it means change? That's really the question that God was asking the Israelites he, he was saw in Isaiah 58, you see Israel, and these people had experienced God's power, they experienced God's presence with them in really miraculous ways, and yet now they kind of settled into normal religion, which had no power in it. Normal, functional, uh, dutiful religion, but had no life change in it. And he's calling them back, he's calling them back. And I believe God's put this on my heart for our church for this weekend. So let's look at it. Isaiah 58, uh, beginning at verse 1. If you're with me, say amen. This is the word of God. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgments of their God. They asked me for righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such a fast that I chose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Now stop, stop right there. What's going on here? There's actually a conversation happening here. See, God's saying, you, you folks look like, if he was in Texas, he'd say it that way. You folks, right, look like uh, you really care about me. I mean, you, he said you show up daily to the temple. 
You show up and you go through the motions and you go through the worships or you actually fast and go through the festival. You look like a nation that really wants to seek me, but I know there's something missing. There's something missing inside of you. And the people knew there was something missing. They were going through the motions. They were going to church. They were doing all the right things. And yet they weren't hearing God speak to them. They didn't see God powerfully moving. There wasn't anything supernatural happening among them. And they're like, God, why is that? Why we're doing everything you tell us to do. We don't see you moving. We don't see you answering our prayers. We don't see you going before us. And he said, you want to know why? He said, because when you have a fast and you go through your, your, your ritual of, fat, of, of sackcloth and ashes and going through all your motions, it's all on the outside. But I know what you're doing when you go home. When you go home, you're oppressing your workers. When you go home, you're getting in knockdown dragouts with your, with your spouse or with your kids. I, I know how you're treating those people at the office. I hear everything you say on Monday and on Thursday and on Friday. It's not like I just tune in on the weekend. I see all of that. And if you think that, that you can just go off like that and act one way at the church house and a different way at, at your house, that, and you think I'm going to hear you and respond to you, then you got another thing coming. It'd be like saying to a family, you know, they, when they come to church, man, they got the Bible up high, you know, and they say, oh, pastor, you know, everything's great. Come, kids, come on in here. Everybody smile. Shake the preacher's hand, right? Uh, but man, when you get home, it is, it is World War III. And God sees all that. He saw their religious expressions, but they were not changed on the inside. In fact, they were actually behaving in a way that was opposite to that. And he said, you expect me to uh, respond to you when you pray? Mark Twain was raised by a godly mother and, a, and lived with a godly wife. And yet he walked away from God, walked away from the church. And he said, the number one reason why is because he said, when I was a young boy, I would come to church and I would see people sing hymns and I would hear them nod at the preacher and I would see them shake his hand and I would see them lead a class. But he said, when they got home, some of them owned slaves that they mistreated. Some of them were uh, hateful at work and treated their children and their families poorly. And he said, you know what? If that's the way God is, I don't want anything about that. Hypocrisy is the number one deterrent to people coming to Jesus. Is that you act one way and then you, at church, and then you act a different way the rest of the week. And God said that actually hinders your prayers. He goes, you won't be heard on high if you act like that. And it's almost like they were saying, well, what do you expect from us then? I mean, we're doing all the, we're going through all the motion like he tells us to do. What do you want from us, God? And so he answers that question in verse six. So look at it. We're just walking our way through it. Verse six. He said, is not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the strap of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? And when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. What God was basically saying is this, listen, I, I'm not that impressed with outward religious expression. What I want to see is that you change differently on the inside. And then that's seen in how you deal with people. He said, if you really love me, then love the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. 
If you, if you really care about me, then care for the poor. If you really want to draw close to me, draw close to the marginalized. If you really, really uh, want to worship me and, and be close to me, then be close to those that I care about. See, we love God best. You love God best, not just when you worship with your voice, but you love God best when you care for the poor and the oppressed and those that are kicked to the curb. That's what he's saying. In fact, he goes on to say exactly how to do that. If you look at verse 6, he gives a couple of reasons. One is, or one way is by lifting oppression. Look at what he says, lift the bonds, undo the straps, let the oppressed go free. In other words, he's saying Christians are not supposed to be people that put heavy burdens on people's back. They should be cutting it off of them. That's what Jesus said was happening with the Pharisees. He said, you guys put all these heavy loads on people's back, these religious rules that they have to follow. You can't even keep all of them. You put them on their backs, and then you won't even lift a finger to help them out. People of God should not be strapping people down. They should be releasing them. Maybe that's releasing from addiction or releasing them from uh, poverty or releasing them from uh, sexual trafficking. But we should be those that champion the release of bondage, not increasing bondage. In fact, uh, he goes on to say in in, uh, Proverbs 31.18, Proverbs 31.8, he said, speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves. When you advocate on behalf of those who cannot speak for themselves, when you defend those who cannot defend themselves, when you stand your ground against injustice and unrighteousness in our society, then you are truly worshiping God. He said you're to release those that are bound up. That's what I'm looking for. He also, number two, he says, uh, he says, you do that by feeding the hungry. Literally, he says, share your bread with the hungry. Bring the homeless into your house. When was the last time you had somebody that was homeless in your house or share a meal with you? He said to share your food, to feed someone that's hungry. And by the way, it's not just an arm length kind of deal. Like, well, I'd throw a couple, uh, throw a couple of bills in the, in the plate and that'll go to help feed somebody. No, he's like, get involved. In fact, in verse 10, he says, pour out your very self. Uh, some versions say, share your soul, not just your food. That means you got to roll up your sleeves and you got to serve somebody and look them in the eye and say, you matter to God and you matter to me. He said, share your food. Then he goes on to say, you need to clothe those who are naked or clothe those who, who need covering, literally, literally to uh, cover those who are exposed. That doesn't really need a whole lot of explanation. Then in verse four, uh, or, or in the number four, he says, removing condemnation. Now, I want you to look at verse nine. He says, one way that you care for people is by removing condemnation. In verse nine, he talks about the pointing finger and the wicked words. The pointing finger, the idea is that, you know, when you point to somebody, you go, you're the problem around here. You're the reason why our country's going down the pot. You know, you're the reason why, you're, you're, you got to get your act together. You, you, it's you, you're the problem. The pointing finger of condemnation. Some scholars say it also could include giving people the finger. You know, a, 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 a vile, mistreating way that you, through a gesture, cut someone down. He said, you got to get rid of that. The, the hurtful words, the evil speech, it's, it's the racial slur. It's the, it's, the, it's the joke at somebody else's expense. It's the, uh, 
it's the prejudicial talk. It's, uh, it's the sexual innuendo. He said all that stuff has no place in God's house. No place. I mean, it certainly it involves cursing, but it's even deeper than that. It's just the way you treat people. You dehumanize people. He said, that's got to go if you're going to worship me. So he said, if you really love God, what you're going to do is you're going to love him by best by loving the poor, by loving the oppressed, by loving the marginalized, getting these things out of your life and beginning to engage with them and treat them the way God sees them as people that matter to him, as people that matter to God. Several years ago, or, or I guess when the girls were growing up, Liz used to have a little red placard in our house that you would put up on an easel. It was on a kind of a tin metal. It was red, it had black lettering. And she always had it on our table where we would eat every meal. And on that placard were the words to Micah 6, 8. It says, what does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with the Lord your God? That's really what God wants from us to do justly, to do what's right, and, and to love mercy, to love to give, and to love to help others, and then just to walk humbly day after day with God. That's what God expects of us. Listen, uh, you may be asking the question, well, why is this so important to God? Why is caring for the poor so important to God? It obviously is important to him, and many times it's not that important to us. Why is it so important to God? And let me answer, answer that question. It's really important you understand this. It's important to God because God always associates himself with the poor. God always has identified himself with the poor and with the needy and with the hungry and with the outcast and with the marginalized, always. In fact, you see this all the way through the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it, it, to do something negative for the poor was negative against God, but to do something good for the poor was to bless God. You see this all the way through. I could give many verses, but I'll just give you a few right now. Uh, Proverbs 14, 31, those who oppress the poor insult their maker, but, those, but helping the poor honors him. So if you want to, if you bless the poor and honor them, then you honor God. But if you insult the poor, you insult God. See, God identifies with them. Another great verse is Proverbs 19, 17 says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. I love this verse because it reminds me of my first pastor. When I was a young pastor, I was pastoring a church in the inner city in Oklahoma. We had all kinds of uh, diversity in that church. We had, we had lots of racial diversity. We had lots of socioeconomic diversity. We were in a very poor part of town. We ministered to gangbangers and homeless and all kinds of people in our immediate community. We fed them and cared for them and loved on them. It was not uncommon on Sunday morning for homeless folks to kind of come in and out of our building. That was just kind of normal uh, for us. And uh, we had a man in our church, his name was Milford J. Clayton. Now, Milford J. was an African-American man who was a career military. He was in the Army for his whole life. Uh, he actually served in the Pentagon. Very sharp man, now retired. He always came to church with a nice suit on and a crisp shirt and a, and a, and a 
tie that was just puckered right underneath the knot. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, polished shoes. And Milford J. would come in and he would position himself in the crossroads of two major hallways in the church. Whatever door you came in, you would come down one of those hallways and you would encounter Milford J. And he would stand at his post every Sunday. And when people would come in, he would smile at them. He would shake their hand. He would look them right in the eyes. He would bend over, even if they were a little kiddo. And he would say, welcome to God's house. We are so glad to have you here. Milford J. did that day after day, Sunday after Sunday, 24-7 as long as I was there. Uh, and, And he used to love that verse I just quoted. He would say, oh, pastor, don't you know the Bible says when you give to the poor, you lend to the Lord and he gives great benefits. And he'd have this big smile over his face. Milford J. understood that. Now, by the way, this was unheard of in the ancient world. For God to associate with the poor was unheard of. No, God always associated with the powerful. God always associated with the kings and the leaders. That's why kings were often called gods, because they saw that association, but not the God of Israel. The God of Israel always associated with the poor. That's why in Psalm 68, he's called called the, uh, the father to the fatherless, the defender of the widow. He puts the lowly in homes that he, def- he releases the prisoner. That's the God of Israel. He always identified with the poor, always. But we see this most clearly in the life of Jesus. When Jesus came, he did not come into power. He was not born into prestige or prominence. He was born into poverty. When, when they took infant Jesus and dedicated him at the temple, they paid two doves for the sacrifice. That was for the poorest of the poor. He was born into a blue-collar, poor family that worked with their hands. He he never owned a home. He never never owned a business. He never uh, was educated in the the high halls of the the elite uh, universities. He wasn't any of that. He associated his whole ministry life with the poor and the hurting and the outcasts and, 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 and the people that thought were worthless. They were the ones that were attracted to Jesus. Think about it. When he rode into Jerusalem, he rode in on a borrowed donkey. When he ate his last meal, he ate it in a borrowed room. And when they took his body down from the cross, they took it in a, put it in a borrowed grave. Jesus always associated himself with the poor. Jesus was mistreated. He was looked down upon. He was unjustly tried. He went under the lash. He received the nails as a common criminal that wasn't worth anything. He was spit on. He was ridiculed. Listen, if you're here today and you feel you've been victimized by people in power, you feel like you've been looked down on, that nobody cares about you, whether you live or die, then then Jesus can understand. Because he was abused like you have been. Jesus probably most clearly, though, associated himself with the poor in Matthew 25 when he was describing to his his followers, he said, you're going to, at the end of time, I'm going to sit on my throne and I'm going to gather all men. I'm going to judge them. I'm going to separate them in two groups. And he said to one group, I'm going to say this. You saw, when you saw me hungry, you fed me. And when you saw me thirsty, you gave me a drink. And when I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you came to see me. When I was a stranger, you took me in. Six times you're going to say, when I, when I, when I, when I, when I. And they're going to say, wait a minute, time out, Lord. We never saw you do that. And he said, don't you understand? When you saw the least of these, it was me. And you did it to them. You did it unto me. 
Mother Teresa, who gave her life ministering in the slums of Calcutta to the poorest of the poor, literally would wash their bodies and hold their hands as they died. The riffraff of the earth. She gave them dignity and love in their last days. And she said, when I look in the face of the poor, I see Jesus in disguise. Think about that. The next time you see that hungry family or you, that homeless man pushing a shopping cart or that pregnant teenager or that refugee or the next time you see that abused woman or that person dying with AIDS, when you see them, you see Jesus in disguise. He said, when you love them, you love me because I associate with the poor. If you want to love me, if you really care about me, you'll love me best when you care for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. And, and what I love about Isaiah 58 is he not only tells us to do it, but then he, then he gives us a great promise. If the first couple of verses is convicting to you, which it has been for me, then the rest of the chapter really is super encouraging. Because he said, if you'll do this, then I'll do something for you. I want you to look at it. Look at verse 8. He says, if you will love the poor like this, he said, then verse 8, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke of the, uh, in your midst and the pointing of the finger and the speaking wickedness, and if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in the scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose water does, do not fail. And your ancient ruin shall be rebuilt, and you shall rise up, uh, raise up the nations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. I love that. He goes, man, if you will, if you will just do what I'm telling you to do, uh, to not just go through the motions spiritually on, on the weekend, but if you will give yourself away to the poor and the needy and care for them like I do, he said that I'm going to change you. You will not be one of those hypocrites that people look at and say, yeah, they do that at church, but they don't care about anybody else. You won't do that. You will, be, you will prove yourself to be truly a follower of Christ because they see what you do on Sunday and they'll see how you live the rest of the week. And they'll say, that's what I'm looking for. That's what I want. He said, you will be a light. You will radiate with a light. You'll be a ray of hope. He said, your reputation will be your generosity will go before you. He said, people will see it and they will know it. He said, you'll be like a well-watered garden. I love that. Could this be what Jesus was talking about when he said, if you follow me, you will, waters will well up within you of eternal life. Uh, yeah, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Could he maybe have thought about this verse and he said, you know what, when you follow me, I'm going to fill you with my spirit. And you're just going to overflow with hope to other people. You're going to be a channel of hope to those who have no hope. 
He said, he said, your bones will strengthen. I will hear your prayers. I'll protect you. I'll go before you and behind you. I'll provide your every need. He said, when you cry out to God, you won't hear crickets. You'll hear my name saying, here I am. I am right here in the midst of you. That's what God wants for his church. That's what we should be. That's what God is looking for. You see, if you love God, you love him best when you love the poor and the outcast and the marginalized, and God will change you. I mean, let me ask you something. Have you ever felt like, man, I'm just kind of going through the motions. I just kind of read my Bible. It's not really alive to me. I kind of go to worship and just kind of get through that. I don't really have, you know, I don't really have a lot of relationships. You know, I just kind of go through the motions. Listen, if, if that is what you're doing, if you're going through the motions, then maybe the problem is that you have not loved the people God loves. You've not spent yourself the way God wants you to. And I've seen people come alive. I remember one older couple in a church back when I was a young minister. This couple was in church their whole life. And can I just say, they were grumpy one and grumpy two. You know what I'm talking about? They just were, you know, just kind of hardened and grumpy and nothing was suited them. The music they didn't like, the program they didn't like, the preacher they didn't like. They're just about everything they saw they didn't like. They were just, they were just constant. Just even their demeanor was down. And yet, one, the, I believe it was the husband got involved in a ministry to the poor. And then he got his wife involved in the ministry report. I'm telling you, their whole face, demeanor, everything changed about them. When they died, they died happy people that loved God would come up and hug my neck. and be like, who are you? I mean, they were completely changed. All of a sudden, they were not think, thinking about themselves. They were a well-watered garden pouring out. That's what God wants to do in your life. He wants to change you. That's what happened to Richard Stern. That one phone call changed his whole perspective. He realized that he, he was like the rich young ruler that was going through all the motions, could check all the box, but did not care for the poor. And he walked away from his international CEO job and he took on that role at World Vision that services over 4 million kids all around the world, 100 different uh, countries to the poorest of the poor. And he said, I traded success for true significance. There is bound up within each one of us the potential to serve God and to change the world. But are you willing to love those he tells you to love. He said, well, Craig, uh, what, do you, what do you expect me to do? What do you want me to do? Well, let me just kind of put some action point, one action point to this. Here's one thing you can do. I want you to think about this. I want you to talk about this today. The one thing you can do is this. Make room in your life for the poor. Make room in your life for the poor. I know you're busy. I know you've got a lot of things going on. I've got a lot of pressure at work. But make room in your life for the poor. Let me, let me dive a little deeper. Make room in your prayer life for the poor. When you pray, pray for those that are hurting. When you hold hands around the table this afternoon and you thank God for the meal, pray for those who have no meal today and ask God to help you to meet their needs. Make room in your prayer life. Make room in your schedule. That is that, you know, find ways to take your family and engage them in serving for the poor. We're going to be providing for you on our website multiple opportunities for you to care for the poor and serve the poor as a family or as a group. 
But let me give you one right now. On December the 11th and on December the 13th, our church is going to sponsor two schools that are in very poor areas in our local community. And for one hour, we're going to go in and we're going to give them gifts. We're going to serve them a meal. We're going to tell them how much God loves them. It takes one hour, folks, on December the 11th and on December the 13th. Do you think you could schedule time, one hour, to care for the poor? To intentionally, purposefully do that. Here's another thing. Make room at your table for the poor. He said, invite someone in your home, maybe over this Thanksgiving break. There's somebody you know that maybe they don't have family here or they, they struggle financially, that you can invite them to share Thanksgiving at your table and you can love on them and let them see how much they matter to God. Or maybe you could lock arms with one of our partners over the Thanksgiving or Christmas holidays and, and serve the poor and the hurting and the oppressed. Make room at your table. Another one is make room in your budget for the poor. As you budget for all the things that you want to do as you save for the next trip or you save for the next thing, could you not budget a line item that gives to the poor? That's really what this big give is about. It's about an opportunity for us who have so much to give a portion of that to those who need so much. And as you give, you're giving unto the Lord. And he pays great dividends, right? Great dividends, as Milford J. would say. But one last thing, make room in your heart for the poor. What I mean by that is when, when, when you become calloused, when you become indifferent, when your cynicism and you become jaded uh, starts to overtake your heart, when you look at a person and say, well, they're just getting what they deserve or they should have done something else or they're just being lazy or if I give that money and they'll go buy alcohol with it or whatever the thing is that you do. When your heart starts to get hard, would you ask God to break your heart? You know, all week God's been pushing his finger in my chest saying, Craig, what are you doing for the poor? It's one thing to hear it. It's another thing to say it. But what are you doing? And I've got work to do. I think we all have work to do. But to say, God, don't let me get jaded. God, let me see every human being as someone that matters to you. And then when I look in their face, I see Jesus in disguise.